Section 11 of A Year Amongst the Persians by Edward Granville Brown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Year Amongst the Persians by Edward Granville Brown. Having now spoken of the topography, buildings, and institutions of the capital, it behoves me to say something about its social aspects. I begin naturally with the royal family. Of Nasiruddin Shah, the reigning king, I have already said something. His appearance has been rendered so familiar in Europe by his three visits to the west, that of it I need hardly speak. He has had a long reign, if not a very glorious one, for he was crowned at Tehran on the 20th of October 1848, and there seems every likelihood that he will live to celebrate his jubilee. He came to the throne very young, being not much more than 17 or 18 years of age. Before that time he had resided at Tabriz as governor of the province of Azerbaijan, an office always conferred by Qajar sovereigns on the crown prince. The Qajars, as I have already said, are of Turkish origin, and the language of Azerbaijan is also a dialect of Turkish. Whence it came about that Nasiruddin Shah, on his accession, could scarcely express himself at all in Persian, a fact to which Dr. Polak, about that time his court physician, bears testimony. Even now, though he habitually speaks and writes Persian, and has even composed and published some poems in that language, he prefers, I believe, to make use of Turkish in conversation with such of his intimates as understand it. I wish to insist on the fact that the reigning dynasty of the Qajars are essentially of Turkish race, because it is often overlooked, and because it is of some political importance. When the Shah was in England, for instance, certain journals were pleased to speak of him as a descendant of Cyrus, which is about as reasonable as if one should describe our own Prince of Wales as a descendant of King Arthur. The whole history of Persia, from the legendary wars between the Kiyanian kings and Afrasiyab down to the present day, is the story of a struggle between the Turkish races, whose primitive home is in the region east of the Caspian Sea and north of Khurasan on the one hand, and the southern Persians of almost pure Aryan race on the other. The distinction is well marked even now, and the old antipathy still exists, finding expressions in verses such as those quoted above at page 77, and in anecdotes illustrative of Turkish stupidity and dullness of wit, of which I shall have occasion to give one in a subsequent chapter. Ethnologically, therefore, there is a marked distinction between the people of the north and the people of the south, a distinction which may be most readily apprehended by comparing the sullen, moody, dull-witted, fanatical, violent inhabitants of Azerbaijan with the bright, versatile, clever, sceptical, rather timid townsfolk of Kirman. In Fars, also, good types of the Aryan Persian are met with, but there is a large admixture of Turkish tribesmen, like the Qashqais, who have migrated and settled there. 
Indeed, this intermixture has now extended very far, but in general the terms northern and southern may, with reservation, be taken as representing a real and significant difference of type in the inhabitants of Persia. Since the downfall of the Caliphate and the lapse of the Arabian supremacy, the Turkish has generally been the dominant race, for in the physical world it is commonly physical force which wins the day, and dull, dogged courage bears down versatile and subtle wit. Thus it happens that today the Qajars rule over the kinsmen of Cyrus and Shapur, as ruled in earlier days the Ghaznavids and the Seljuks. But there is no love lost between the two races, as any one will admit who has taken the trouble to find out what the southern peasant thinks of the northern court, or how the Qajars regard the cradle of Persia's ancient greatness. Of the Shah's character I do not propose to add much to what I have said already, for in the first place I am conscious of a prejudice against him in my mind arising from the ineffaceable remembrance of his horrid cruelties towards the Barbies, and in the second place I enjoyed no unusual facilities for forming a weighty judgment. I have heard him described by a high English official, who had good opportunities of arriving at a just opinion, as a liberal-minded and enlightened monarch, full of manliness, energy, and sound sense, who in a most difficult situation had displayed much tact and wisdom. It must also be admitted that, apart from the severities practised against the Barbies, which, with alternate remissions and exacerbations, have continued from the beginning of his reign down to the present time, his rule has been, on the whole, mild and comparatively free from the cruelties which mar nearly every page of Persian history. During the latter part of his reign especially, executions and cruel punishments, formerly of almost daily occurrence, have become very rare, but this is partly to be attributed to the fear of European public opinion, and desire to be thought well of at Western courts and in Western lands, which exercise so strong an influence over his mind. For most of the more recent Barbie persecutions, the Shah was not directly responsible. It was his eldest son, the Zilus Sultan, who put to death the two martyrs of Isfahan in 1879, and Mirza Ashraf of Abadeh in 1888. And it was in his jurisdiction, though during his absence, that the persecutions of Sihti and Najaf Abad occurred in the summer of 1889, while the cruel murder of seven innocent Barbies at Yezd in May 1890 lies at the door of Prince Jalalud-Dawla, son of the Zilus Sultan and grandson of the Shah. The last Barbie put to death actually by the Shah's order was, I think, the young messenger Mirza Badi who brought from Acre and delivered into the king's own hands at Tehran the remarkable apology for the Barbi faith addressed to him by Beha'u'llah. This was in July 1869. In extenuation of the earlier and more wholesale persecutions, it has been urged that the Barbies were in rebellion against the crown, and that the most horrible of them, that of September 1852, was provoked by the attempt made by three Barbies on the Shah's life. 
but this attempt itself apart from the fact that so far as can be ascertained it was utterly unauthorized on the part of the barbi leaders was caused by the desperation to which the barbies had been driven by a long series of cruelties and especially by the execution of their founder in eighteen fifty amongst the victims also were several persons who inasmuch as they had been in captivity for many months were manifestly innocent of complicity in the plot notably the beautiful kuratul ain whose heroic fortitude under the most cruel tortures excited the admiration and wonder of dr polak the only european probably who witnessed her death these executions were not merely criminal but foolish the barbarity of the persecutors defeated its own ends and instead of inspiring terror gave the martyrs an opportunity of exhibiting a heroic fortitude which has done more than any propaganda however skilful could have done to ensure the triumph of the cause for which they died often have i heard persians who did not themselves belong to the proscribed sect tell with admiration how Suleiman khan his body pierced with well-nigh a score of wounds in each of which was inserted a lighted candle went to the place of execution singing with exultation yakdas jami badeva yakdas zulfiyar raksi chunin mayana yemidanam arzust in one hand the wine cup in the other the tresses of the friend such a dance do i desire in the midst of the market-place the impression produced by such exhibitions of courage and endurance was profound and lasting nay the faith which inspired the martyrs was often contagious as the following incident shows a certain yezdi ruff noted for his wild and disorderly life went to see the execution of some barbies perhaps to scoff at them but when he saw with what calmness and steadfastness they met torture and death his feelings underwent so great a revulsion that he rushed forward crying kill me too i also am a barbie and thus he continued to cry till he too was made a partaker in the doom he had come out only to gaze upon during my stay in Tehran, I saw the Shah several times, but only once sufficiently near to see his features clearly. This was on the occasion of his visiting the new telegraph office on his way to the university, where he was to preside over the distribution of prizes. Through the kindness of Major Wells, then superintendent of the Indo-European Telegraph in Persia, H. and myself were enabled to stand in the porch of the building while the Shah entered, surrounded by his ministers. We afterwards followed him to the university, and witnessed the distribution of prizes, which was on the most liberal scale, most of the students, so far as I could see, receiving either medals or sums of money averaging three or four tumans, about one pound. The Shah sat in a room opening out into the quadrangle, where the secretaries of state, Mustafis, professors and students were ranged in order. Around him stood the princes of the royal family, including his third son, the Naibu Sultana, and the ministers of state. The only person allowed to sit beside him was his little favourite, Mani Jak, who accompanied him on his last journey to Europe. 
the shah's extraordinary fondness for this child for he did not at the time i saw him appear to be more than eleven or twelve years old was as annoying to the persian aristocracy as it was astonishing to the people of europe it galled the spirit of the proud nobles of persia to watch the daily increasing influence of this little wizened sallow-faced kurdish lad who was neither nobly born nor of comely countenance nor of pleasant manners and amiable disposition to see honours and favours lavished upon him and his ignoble kinsmen to be compelled to do him reverence and bespeak his good offices all this now is a thing of the past within the last year or so ghulam ali khan the kurd better known as mani jak which in the kurdish tongue signifies a sparrow and some while dignified by the title of azizus sultan the darling of the king fell from favour and was hurled from the pinnacle of power down to his original obscurity the cause of his fall was i believe that one day while he was playing with a pistol the weapon exploded and narrowly missed the shah this was too much and manijak and his favoured kinsmen were shorn of their titles and honours and packed off to their humble home in kurdistan perhaps it was after all as well for them for the darling of the king was far from being the darling of the court sooner or later his fall was bound to come and had it been later it might have been yet more grievous the shah has five sons two of these the salarul mulk and the ruknul mulk were at the time of which i write mere children they were described as beautiful and attractive boys but neglected by their father in favour of mani jak the third son is entitled naibu sultana he resided in tehran and to him was entrusted the government of the city and the supreme military command the two elder sons were born of different mothers and as the mother of vali Acht was a princess he and not his elder brother was chosen as the successor to the throne that the zillu sultan inwardly chafed at being thus deprived of his birthright is hardly to be doubted though he was in the meanwhile compensated for this in some measure by being made governor of the greater part of southern persia including the three important cities of shiraz yezd and isfahan at the last of which he resided in almost regal state here he collected together a considerable body of well-drilled troops who were said to be more efficient and soldierly than any of the regiments in tehran besides these he had acquired a number of guns and his magazines were well provided with arms and ammunition in view of these preparations and the energy and decision of character discernible in this prince it was thought possible that in the event of his father's death he might dispute the crown with his younger and gentler brother the vali Ahd, in which case it appeared not improbable that he might prove victorious or at least succeed in maintaining his supremacy over southern persia all such speculations however were cast to the winds by an utterly unforeseen event which occurred towards the end of february eighteen eighty eight while i was at isfahan in the beginning of that month both the zillu sultan and the vali Ahd had come to tehran the former from isfahan the latter from tabriz to pay a visit to their father a decoration was to be presented to the former by the english government for the protection and favour which he had extended to english trade and enterprise 
towards which he had ever shown himself well disposed. Suddenly, without warning, came the news that he had been deprived of all his governments, with the exception of the city of Isfahan, that he and some of his ministers who had accompanied him to the capital were kept to all intents and purposes prisoners within its walls, that his deputy governors at Yezd, Shiraz, and other towns were recalled, and that his army was disbanded, his artillery removed to Tehran, and his power effectually shattered. On first hearing from the Shah that of all the fair regions over which he had held sway, Isfahan only was left to him, he is reported to have said in the bitterness of his heart, You had better take that from me too, to which the Shah replied, I will do so, and will give it to your son, Prince Jalalud-Dawla, then governor for his father at Shiraz. This threat was, however, not carried out, and the Zilus Sultan still possesses the former capital as a remnant of his once wide dominions. Passing from the Shah and his sons, we must now turn our attention to one or two other members of the royal family. Foremost amongst these is, or rather was, for he died in 1888, while I was still in Persia, the Shah's aged uncle, Ferhad Mizar, Muttamadud Dawla, with whom, through the kindness of Dr. Torrance of the American Missionary Establishment, and by means of his interest with Prince Ihtishamut Dawla, the son of Ferhad Mizar, and since the downfall of the Zilud Sultan, governor of Shiraz and the province of Fars, I obtained the honour of an interview. We found him seated amidst a pile of cushions in his Andarun, or inner apartments, surrounded by well-stocked shelves of books. He received us with that inimitable courtesy whereby Persians of the highest rank know so well how to set the visitor completely at his ease, and at the same time to impress him with the deepest respect for their nobility. I was greatly struck by his venerable appearance and dignified mien, as well as by the indomitable energy and keen intelligence expressed by the flashing eye and mobile features, which neither old age nor bodily infirmity was able to rob of their animation. He talked much of a book called Nisab, written by himself to facilitate the acquisition of the English language, with which he had some acquaintance, to his countrymen. Of this work he subsequently presented me with a copy, which I value highly as a souvenir of its illustrious author. It is arranged on the same plan as the Arabic Nisabs, so popular in Persia. That is to say, it consists of a sort of rhymed vocabulary, in which the English words, represented in the text in Persian characters, and repeated in English characters at the head of the page, are explained successively by the corresponding Persian word. The following lines, taken from the commencement of the work, and here represented in English characters, will serve as a specimen of the whole. Dahmahidei Jami Medi Enigari Mahru Kashamimiyan Dimariach Gardad Mushbu Hidsarast Unurs Bini Lip Labast I chuchasma tooth dindan foot pool o hand dust o face rule gushu garden iru nick chik chihre tanga madzaban naf nivildan u pistan ra buzum huan hiar mu 
In the north of day give the cup of wine, O moon-faced beauty, so that by its fragrance the palate of the intellect may become perfumed as with musk. Head is sar, and nose beneath, lip is lab, and eye like chasm. Tooth dindan, foot pool, and hand dust, and face roo. Gush and gardan, ear and neck, cheek chihre, tongue becomes zaban. Recognize naf as navel, and pistan as bosom, call hair mu. I doubt greatly whether such a method of learning a language would commend itself to a European student, but with the Persians endowed as they are with a great facility for learning by heart, it is a very favourite one. Prince Farhad Birzar professed a great kindness for the English nation as well as for their language. Nor, if the following narrative be true, is this to be wondered at, since his life was once saved by Sir Taylor Thompson, when endangered by the anger of his nephew the Shah. Fleeing from the messengers of the king's wrath, he took refuge in the English embassy, and threw himself on the protection of his friend the ambassador, who promised to give him shelter so long as it should be necessary. Soon the royal Farashis arrived, and demanded his surrender, which demand was unhesitatingly refused. They then threatened to break in by force and seize their prisoner, whereupon Sir Taylor Thompson drew a line across the path, and declared that he would shoot the first man who attempted to cross it. Thereupon they thought it best to retire, and Ferhad Mirza remained for a while the guest of the British Embassy, during which time Sir Taylor Thompson never suffered him to partake of a dish without first tasting it himself, for it was feared that, violence having failed, poison might perhaps be employed. Ultimately the Shah's anger subsided, and his uncle was able again to emerge from his place of refuge. Before the close of our audience, Ferhad Mirza asked me how long I intended to stop in Tehran, and whither I proposed to go on leaving it. I replied that my intention was to proceed to Shiraz as soon as the spring set in, since that it was the Darul Ilm, abode of knowledge, and I thought that I might better pursue my studies there. That, replied Ferhad Mirza, is quite a mistake. Five hundred years ago Shiraz was the Darul Ilm, but now that has passed, and it can only be called the Darul Fisk, abode of vice. Firhad Mirza has little reason to like Shiraz, nor has Shiraz much better reason to like Firhad Mirza. He was twice governor of that town and the province of Fars, of which it is the capital, and was so unpopular during his administration that when he was recalled the populace did not seek to hide their delight, and even pursued him with jeers and derisive remarks. Ferhad Mirza swore that the Shirazis should pay for their temporary triumph right dearly, and he kept his word. After a lapse of time he was again appointed governor of the city that had insulted him, and his rule, never of the gentlest, became sterner than ever. During his four years of office, ending about 1880, he is said to have caused no less than 700 hands to be cut off for various offences. In one case a man came and complained that he had lost an ass, which was subsequently found amongst the animals belonging to a lad in the neighbourhood. The latter was seized and brought before Firhad Mirza, who, as soon as the ass had been identified by the plaintiff, 
ordered the hand of the defendant to be cut off without further delay, giving no ear to the protestations of the poor boy that the animal had, of its own accord, entered his herd, and that he had not, till the accusation of theft was preferred against him, been able to discover its owner. Besides these minor punishments, many robbers and others suffered death. Not a few were walled up alive in pillars of mortar, there to perish miserably. The remains of these living tombs may still be seen just outside the Derwazay-ye-Kassab-Khane slaughterhouse gate at Shiraz, while another series lines the road as it enters the little town of Abadi, situated near the northern limit of the province of Fars. On another occasion, a certain Sheikh Mazkur, who had revolted in the Garamsir, or hot region, bordering on the Persian Gulf, and had struck coins in his own name, was captured and brought to Shiraz, together with two of his followers, one of whom was his chief executioner. Virhad Mirza first compelled the Sheikh to eat one of his own coins, and then caused him and his followers to be strangled and suspended from a lofty gibbet, as a warning to the disaffected. Notwithstanding his severity, Ferhad Mirza enjoyed a great reputation for piety, and had accomplished the pilgrimage to Mecca. His son, as I have said, was, early in 1888, appointed governor of Shiraz, where the reputation of his father caused his advent to be looked forward to with some apprehension. The only other member of the Persian royal family whom I met was one of the brothers of the Shah, entitled Izud-Dawla, who, if less important a personage than Ferhad Mirza, was by no means less courteous. He asked many questions about recent inventions in Europe, manifesting an especial interest, so far as I remember, in patent medicines and dynamite. Having now completed all that I have to say about the reigning dynasty, I will speak shortly of Persian dinner parties at Tehran. As these are seen in a more truly national form in the provinces, where chairs, tables, knives and forks have not yet obtruded themselves to such an extent as in the semi-Europeanized capital, I shall leave much that I have to say on this subject for subsequent pages. Most of the Persians with whom I was intimate at Tehran had adopted European habits to a considerable extent, and during my residence there I was only on two occasions present at a really national entertainment. The order of procedure is always much the same. The guests arrive about sundown and are ushered into what corresponds to the drawing-room, where they are received by their host and his male relations, for women are, of course, excluded. Talyans, water-pipes, and wine or undiluted spirits, the latter being preferred, are offered them, and they continue to smoke and drink intermittently during the whole of the evening. Dishes of argil, pistachio-nuts, and the like, are handed round or placed near the guests, and from time to time a spit of kebabs, pieces of broiled meat, enveloped in a folded sheet of the flat bread called nane sangak, is brought in. These things bring out the flavour of the wine, and serve to stimulate, and at the same time appease, the appetite of the guests, for the actual supper is not served till the time for breaking up the assembly has almost arrived, which is rarely much before midnight. As a rule, music is provided for the entertainment of the guests. 
The musicians are usually three in number. One plays a stringed instrument, the sitar, one a drum, dunbak, consisting of an earthenware framework, shaped something like a huge egg cup, and covered with parchment at one end only. The third sings to the accompaniment of his fellow performers. Sometimes dancing boys are also present, who excite the admiration and applause of the spectators by their elaborate posturing, which is usually more remarkable for acrobatic skill than for grace, at any rate according to our ideas. These, however, are more often seen in Shiraz than at Tehran. Occasionally the singer is a boy, and if his voice be sweet and his appearance comely, he will be greeted with rapturous applause. At one entertainment to which I had been invited, the guests were so moved by the performance of the boy singer that they all joined hands and danced round him in a circle, chanting in a kind of monotonous chorus, Barakallah, Kuchulu, Barakallah, Kuchulu, God bless thee, little one, God bless thee, little one, till sheer exhaustion compelled them to stop. When the host thinks that the entertainment has lasted long enough, he gives the signal for supper, which is served either in the same or in another room. A cloth is laid on the floor, round which are arranged long flat cakes of pebble bread, which do double duty as food and plates. The meats, consisting for the most part of pilaus and chilaus of different sorts, are placed in the centre, together with bowls of sherbet, each of which is supplied with a delicately carved wooden spoon, with deep boat-shaped bowl, whereof the sides slope down to form a sort of keel at the bottom. The guests squat down on their knees and heels round the cloth, the host placing him who he desires most to honour on his right side at the upper end of the room, i.e. opposite the door. At the lower end, the musicians and minstrels take their places, and all, without further delay, commence an attack on the viands. The consumption of food progresses rapidly, with but little conversation, for it is not usual in Persia to linger over meals, or to prolong them by talk, which is better conducted while the mouth is not otherwise employed. If the host wishes to pay special honour to a guest, he picks out and places in his mouth some particularly delicate morsel. In about a quarter of an hour from the commencement of the banquet, most of the guests have finished, and washed their hands by pouring water over them from a metal ewer into a plate of the same material, brought round by the servants for that purpose. They then rinse out their mouths, roll down their sleeves again, partake of a final pipe, and unless they mean to stay for the night, depart homewards, either on foot or on horseback, preceded by a servant bearing a lantern. Such is the usual course of a Persian dinner party, and the midday meal, Nahar, to which guests are sometimes invited, differs from it only in this, that it is shorter and less boisterous. Although I have described the general features of such an entertainment in some detail, I fear that I have failed to convey any idea of the charm which it really possesses. This charm results partly from the lack of constraint and the freedom of the guests, partly from the cordial welcome which a Persian host so well knows how to give, 
partly from the exhilarating influence of the wine and music, which, though so different from that to which we are accustomed, produces in such as are susceptible to its influence an indescribable sense of subdued ecstasy, but more than all from the vigour, variety and brilliancy of the conversation. There is no doubt that satiety produces somnolence and apathy, as is so often seen at English dinner-parties. Hence the Persians wisely defer the meal till the very end of the evening, when sleep is to be sought. During the earlier stages of the entertainment, their minds are stimulated by wine, music and mirth, without being dulled by the heaviness resulting from repletion. This, no doubt, is one reason why the conversation is, as a rule, so brilliant. But beyond this, the quick, versatile, subtle mind of the Persian, stored as it usually is with anecdotes, historical, literary, and incidental, and freed for the time being from the restraint which custom ordinarily imposes on it, flashes forth on these occasions in coruscations of wit and humour, interspersed with pungent criticism and philosophical reflections which display a wonderful insight. Hence it is that one rarely fails to enjoy thoroughly an evening spent at a Persian banquet, and that the five or six hours during which it lasts hardly ever hang heavily on one's hands. The Persians have only two full meals in the day, Nahar, which one may call indifferently either breakfast or lunch, since on the one hand it is the first meal of the day, and on the other it is not taken till a little before noon, and Sham, or supper, which, as I have already stated, is eaten the last thing before retiring for the night. Besides these two meals, tea is taken on rising in the morning, and again in the afternoon. The usual way in which a Persian of the upper classes spends his day is then somewhat as follows. He rises early, often before sunrise, which indeed he must do, if devotionally inclined, for the morning prayer, and, after drinking a glass or two of tea, without milk, of course, and smoking a kalyan, sets about the business of the day, whatever it may be. About noon, or a little earlier, he has his breakfast, nahar, which differs little from supper as regards its material. After this, especially if the season be summer, he usually lies down and sleeps till about 3 p.m. From this time till sunset is the period for paying calls, so he either goes out to visit a friend or else stays at home to receive visitors. In either case, tea and kalyans constitute a prominent feature in the afternoon's employment. Casual visitors do not, as a rule, remain long after sunset, and on their departure, unless an invitation to supper has been given or received, the evening is quietly passed at home, till the time for supper and bed arrives. In the case of government employees, as well as shopkeepers, tradesmen and others, whose hours of work are longer, a considerable portion of the afternoon may have to be spent in business, but in any case this rarely lasts after 4 or 5 p.m. Calls may also be paid in the early morning, before the day's work commences. The true Persian life is, however, as I have before remarked, much better seen in the provinces than in the capital, where European influences have already wrought a great change in national customs. Further remarks on it will therefore find a fitter place in a subsequent chapter.
End of section 11.